the necessity of fear, the unpleasantness of fear, um, fear of being connected to the vulnerability. And we also spoke about um, how fear of punishment is not really what we're talking about at all, right? That this fear um, has to do with how the, the awareness of the greatness of Hashem has an impact on our godly soul, um, and that just gets kind of manifest in our emotional experience. Um, and he says, let's just read in the text, it says that this fear, he says it's in his mind to make him turn away from the evil condemned by the Torah or by the rabbis, even from a minor rabbinic prohibition, heaven forbid. So the first thing I want to do is I want to talk about why he says the fear is in the mind. Um, There's a very big difference between fear and desire. I mean, there's several differences, but for our purposes, there's a very big difference. And, and the difference is, is that desire ultimately is about connection. Okay? Which means I have to feel close to something or someone already as a prerequisite to desire. I have to already have some sense of connection, some sense of affinity, some sense of identification with some, even if it's completely in my head, um, maybe sometimes it's not even grounded in reality, right? So what you desire is a fantasy, but, but it's centered around this notion of, of connection. Fear is very different than that because in fear, there's a sense that there's me and the thing that I am afraid of is clearly distinct from me, right? That goes back to what we spoke about yesterday, right? The vulnerability, it's distinct from me, it can affect me. I might not like the way it affects me. Um, and what that means is that fear kind of has a, a, a very important subdivision that doesn't exist really when it comes to something like love and desire, which is that there's the fear that comes when that, that comes merely from the awareness of something. And then there's the fear that, hap- that comes when that thing is present. So let me explain to you what I mean. Okay. <clears throat> um, and I'm going to do this overly simplistic. We're going to learn later. We have to make more levels and distinctions. But for now, we do it three levels. There is the person who is afraid of making a poor financial decision. Because they have money, they need to, they, they need to do something with that money, um, so they're just going to sit there, um, or that self is actually a decision, right? And, and on the one hand, like, they can make money, they could, they could, they could ensure their, 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 their livelihood. On the other hand, if they make the wrong decision, they could go bankrupt. And that decision is something they have to decide today, tomorrow, whatever it is, Right? The kind of um, emotional intensity that a person would feel in that situation is very different um, than, say, a person who um, has a business, okay? And they recognize that if the business doesn't work properly, there's going to be problems, right? And they could lose money, they could go bankrupt. 
And therefore, they make sure to regularly consult with accountants and lawyers to ensure that things are working properly. Right? You see, those are two very different kinds of states. Okay? And then you have a third person who's just completely just lackadaisical about the whole thing. Like, they just, just you know, money comes, money goes, it doesn't really matter. Okay? The, that third person doesn't have any fear at all. But the, those other two people, the first two people, the, the, there's a fear of losing money. But it's very different. And, we'll, and the reason it's different is because the first person is dealing with the immediacy of the money could be lost right now. I could do something right now that caused me to lose money. Whereas the second person, right, it's about um, there is a danger, there's a threat, but it's in the distance, right? It's, it's real. I don't want to say it's theoretical. It's a real danger, but it's not proximate. It's not part of their immediate experience. Nothing is, happen- nothing is going to happen now which is going to cause me to lose money. But the way I do things now will have an effect on the later. And so the experience of, the experience of fear when the thing that um, you fear is immediate is a very different kind of experience altogether than the experience of fear when that thing is remote. Um, because fear, because, because, and that comes back to what I was saying before, it's because fear ultimately is about there's this other thing and how does that other thing affect me? In desire, and we're going to talk about when we move to love, it's not, this notion of myself versus the other thing is not really what's going on there. And so it makes a, it's a, it's a, a kind of a fundamental distinction, the experience of fear as to where is that the other? Is the other here or is the other over there? It fundamentally changes how we experience fear. Um, and so in Hebrew, we often use the term yira versus pachad for this distinction. Yira is from something that is far, and pachad is something that is close. I want to use English words, we're going to say fear and dread, if you want to use English words. And we'll often say that yira is in the mind and pachad is in the heart. Meaning that there's a kind of an emotional intensity that you can only experience when the, when the I'll use the worst word, um, even though really it's not the right word for Hashem, but we'll use it anyway. When the danger is immediate, the way you experience fear is fundamentally different than the way you experience fear when the danger is remote. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. And that comes because the whole notion of fear is how does this other thing impact me? Okay? Now, since, broadly speaking, our mind is the part of us that allows us to re- relate to reality beyond ourselves, so year is primarily, and I'm using this word felt, it's felt more in the mind, whereas pachad is felt more in the heart. So when we talk about someone like feeling a, like a very serious fear, the more proximate that thing is, in their own estimation, the more it's going to be felt over here, the less proximate it is, the more it's kind of felt over here. Does that make sense? The year is more remote. Year is more remote. So when he says that the year is in the mind is because the thing that you are afraid of or the thing that is, that on this level is causing that fear um, is actually not immediate to the person who's doing this kind of contemplation is in this emotional state. Why? Because if you look, what does he say that the person is actually afraid of? This evil, right, the, the, the same fear, is makes him turn away from evil. Okay? Then he goes on to the Torah, the rabbis, well, we'll get to that later. Okay? Now, what does it mean to be afraid of evil? That's what I want to talk about. So the first thing is, the experience of being afraid of evil is not going to be the same when the evil is remote versus the evil is close, Right? That makes sense? And since this person is in what kind of state? We're describing a person who is what? They're contemplating. That contemplation is having an effect on them to the point that that 
of that emotional intensity ultimately pulls them out of the, con- the state of contemplation to the point that they're having like a strong emotional experience, right? At that point, are they confronting evil in their life at that moment, in that state? When, when do we confront evil in our life? What are kind of situations where we confront evil? Like in obvious things. Terrorist attack. Evil of our lives. Not someone else's evil, our own evil. Mm-hmm. Someone else's evil is a different kind of... If we want to speak Lashon Hara? We want to speak Lashon Hara, right? When we're tempted to sin. Um, when we, we encounter um, negative character traits, right? These things like that. The person we're describing now, are they dealing with that at this moment? Is that something? Is like the person who's going through everything we've been describing in these past classes, at that very moment, are they also feeling this desire to like speak Lashon Hara, to, to, no, they're not. They're, they're like, they're very remote from it. Now, are they still aware that that's part of their life and part of their existence? Right? But it's far. And so the, kind of, the way you experience the fear at that moment is kind of like the fear of what is distant. Right? So it's a more of a fear in the mind. Now, if that sense of fear remains with them on some level and then they come out of this state, but they have remained some of that fear and then they do encounter the evil in their own life, how is that experience of fear going to change? It'll be more immediate, right? Okay. So, but we're not talking about that. Okay. So, what I want to talk about is the person is, they're not struggling with evil. They're not confronting the evil, right? They have this aware, they've developed, they've cultivated this awareness of the greatness of Hashem. It's having such a strong impact on them. It's bringing them to this this state of of, of fear, which we associate much with this notion of of smallness and vulnerability and and, and facing the, the, the uncomfortable truths of things, right? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the Alter Rebbe is, is drawing our attention to that in the realm of fear of evil, which we didn't really talk about yesterday. So what is that fear of evil? We touched on it a little bit, but I want to develop that a bit more. And, and then we're going to talk about like the, the actual, the, 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 the biblical things, the rabbinic things, and we'll get into that. What does it mean to be afraid of evil? So what is evil? And what would it mean to be afraid of it? So first off, what we said yesterday is that when you're afraid of something, right, it has to be of the thing itself. Remember I said like about the example of the thorn, right? You're afraid of the thorn is because the thorn itself is dangerous, not because of the pain from removing the thorn. Right? So being afraid of evil is by definition not the same thing as being afraid of being punished for the evil. In fact, as we spoke about yesterday, if you're afraid of being punished for the evil, that itself is evidence you're not really afraid of the evil. Okay, I'm going to use an example. This is a long time. Uh, are there things that we do that if somebody walked in on us doing, we would feel ashamed? Not because of privacy issues, because of like, 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 it just seems wrong. Like if someone walked in you and you were using the bathroom, you would probably feel a certain degree of shame. That's just a privacy thing. But things you're doing that we all know, we, everybody knows we all use the bathroom. Right? It's not a secret. It's still, it's still appropriate to see people using the bathroom. I'm talking about something, if somebody walked in on you, they saw you doing this, you'd feel ashamed that they now know that you do that kind of thing. You know those kinds of experiences that I'm talking about? Okay. What's going on in that? A person's doing something, and as long as the door is shut and no one sees them, and they, they, can, they can tell themselves, because no one sees me, no one knows that I'm doing it, they can somehow be okay with it. But if someone else knows that I'm doing it, then all of a sudden I would feel ashamed, I would feel embarrassed. And 
for that matter, it doesn't even necessarily mean that it's a specific person, right? It could be a random stranger you've never seen before, you'll never see again. It still creates that kind of sense. So what's going on there? Why is that somebody seeing that you're doing it? You know that you're being seen doing it. Why does that all of a sudden make a person feel embarrassed about those kinds of things? They might tell someone. They might tell you. And, and what? They might tell someone else. And then what? Then you're embarrassed. But you're embarrassed now. Like, are you embarrassed that you might get embarrassed later? Like, yeah, like... still. That, so that's one possibility, and that's the possibility I want to talk about. There's another possibility, which is it can, that can have practical ramifications afterwards. But the thing is, if it's that the second thing, then it really depends who sees you and what they're going to do about it. You said it's beneath you. Oh, but the first thing, that's what I'm talking about. So it's like if, if, if you're doing something and the other person is like, say, I don't know, like say your, your sp- spouse or your boss, right? Then you might be afraid now they're going to treat me differently. In which case, then it's not really a bad thing. But it could also be, the first thing you said is that when someone else sees me, it feels more real. It feels like now, like I'm doing something beneath me, right? And so the other person is almost triggering you to have a sense that like, of seeing yourself more honestly. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Makes it more of like a reality. Right. Now, so then the question is like, well, what's, so then it's really not about that other person then, right? Like that other person is just like facilitating something happening within my psyche. I now, so then what, what is it about this thing? It's beneath me. It's somebody like, what is it? It's, it's, it's somehow like when I'm doing this thing, when I'm involved in this thing, what's so bad about it? What's, 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 what's wrong with it? I was okay with it because I wasn't really being fully honest with myself that that's what I'm doing. I was in some, on some kind of level of kind of like disassociation or denial or not really fully present. And this is how I am spending my time. This is what I'm emotionally, intellectually, physically engaged with, whatever it is, right? But now that person walks in, they see me, now all of a sudden like that forces me into that kind of awareness. But what's so bad about me doing the this, whatever the this is? Like what do we, what do we mean by the it's beneath me? What are, what's, what's in those words? You see yourself a certain way, and it doesn't fit with the way you see yourself. Okay. So, I'm going to say that that's, that's probably definitely part of it. Let's adjust ever so slightly. Let's say I work really hard to come to terms that that is part of myself in some way. Does that mean from then on I'll, I'll, I'll be okay with doing it and it won't bother me anymore? No, not necessarily. So, th- there, there may be something to that, right? That... that, that that there may be a kind of a deeper level of denial that I'm not willing to, to realize that I'm more complex than I, than I like to think of myself. Okay, but I could work to get past that. And I still wouldn't necessarily just embrace doing that thing. So why? Let's use a concrete example. What's so bad about speaking Lashahara? What's what? What's so bad about speaking Lashahara, speaking bad about other people? What's so bad about her? So what? We all like gossiping. It's a human thing. It's enjoyable. Really. You know, there's certain sins which are not enjoyable, okay? As far as I can tell, eating cockroach is not an enjoyable activity. <laughs> it's a sin. 
but slander, gossip, these are, these are seriously enjoyable activities. Anyone who tells you they're not enjoyable is lying to you. Or they're completely like, you know, live in some kind of different mental space than the rest of us. So then what's so bad about it? Okay. So, one way we can say is, oh, Lashon Hara is very bad because if you say Lashon Hara, you say something about someone else, then that could have this ramification. It could ruin somebody's life. Does it say those ideas in Torah? It absolutely says those ideas in Torah. It absolutely, it absolutely says that if you speak ill of somebody else, you could bring horrible consequences even to the point of bloodshed. And therefore, you should be very careful. Your tongue can kill people. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, that's all true. Okay. Can we be honest for a moment? That's a bit extreme. I'm not saying it's not true, but it's a bit extreme. Right? That's kind of like a butterfly effect. Like, because I happen to be schmoozing in shul with somebody about somebody. We mentioned somebody else and somebody else might overhear and then they might overhear and that might ruin their person's reputation. And then, like, then, then their kid won't be able to get a shidduch and then he'll feel depressed and God will, like, like, I mean, yes, that could happen. But if I run around my life really thinking about all the butterfly consequences of everything I do, right? like, I can't live my life, right? So like, that's it? That's just the consequentialist argument that the end, it could cause horrific things? I could even try to help somebody and it might lead to, might lead to, might lead to, might lead, right? So it is true. And if I maybe have, and maybe it's something that I should understand, I should appreciate, but like, is there, is there maybe something more fundamentally wrong, more beneath me, more unbecoming about gossiping than that? And just that it might, it might, it might. There's something, yeah, there's something coarse about it. What does that mean? There's, there's something... W- 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 damaging. That's true. What do you mean it's damaging? Well, because you were saying about butterfly effect, everything that you do has an effect, but it's about what the intention was. If you're saying something to someone, you know... This is very important. A common... Sorry for interrupting. There's a common thing that people don't know is that I'm not, this is not a halacha class, so don't ask me any practical halacha questions, there are different <laughs> views of the matter, but a major consideration in the laws of Lashon Hara is intent. I'm not going into the details, but it's amazing. The very same thing, all factors equal, could be sinful or not sinful, and entirely could depend on intent. intent. So that's clearly, like, there's something about not just the fact I said the words, but why I said the words, that's something so bad about it. In addition, it could have a negative effect, right? But the simple fact that it could have a negative effect in and of itself is not the problem. Mm-hmm. You want to share with the rest of us? Talking about Lash and Hara doesn't always have to be like talking about bad things about people. Like it doesn't always, because she was saying before that it's coarse. So like it doesn't always have to Well, I mean, if we're going to be technically correct, Lash and Hara is always something bad about the person. Rechilus <laughs> is, is just okay. talking about people. But you are right. Broadly speaking, they all go in the same category. But like, it still feels just very like... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Like... So, I'm going to... I'm going to use the following argument, and I want to make sure that we understand this argument. This is not an argument to call, of treat others the way you would like to be treated so that they treat you the way you want to be treated kind of thing. I don't, I don't mean that. I think that's very shallow. How would it feel to you to discover you are the subject of someone else's conversation? It doesn't feel good. Why not? Well, assuming it, it, the conversation is in a negative context. Mm. Mm. Both. No, it's 
I'm aware of it. It's positive, yeah. Once, 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 you ever wonder this? Like, one of these things, like, like why, why is it even itching you scratch and it makes it feel better? Because you're, like, spreading the pain. What? <laughs> it's like you get a piece of pain here, and then, like, you, like, the pain here, oh, and then, like, like you distracts. Right, right. What you end up doing is that you're triggering other nerves, and, and, because, and, because, pain, and because pain and pleasure, wow. pain and pleasure are pros- are, are work like many, many of our things, they work off of contrast, not off of like just direct perception. Like you experience cold in the contrast to heat, heat in the contrast to cold, you experience pain in the absence as contrast to pleasure and vice versa. So if you scratch around the area of the itch, the other nerves get more um, activated, more agitated, which means relatively speaking, the nerves that used to be irritated are now relatively speaking seem unirritated. And the movement from, from seeming really irritated to seeming unirritated, even though they haven't really changed, is experienced as a kind of Minor relief and sometimes even pleasure. Okay. Now, why is it anything to do with Lashon Hara? Okay. So now let's say you find out you're being talked about. Okay? What do you immediately want to know? You just find out, like, like you, you, you first, the first thing is you found out you were being talked about. You have no idea what's being said. Just you were the subject of conversation. At that moment, actually, let's go before. At that moment, do, do you feel a kind of vulnerability? Yes. Okay, we discussed vulnerability yesterday, right? But, but we can scratch the itch right away. If, 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 if. Oh, they were telling how great I am. Okay. You see what I'm saying? Like, like, why? Like, I'm somewhat of a public person. People sometimes talk about me. And if I find out people are talking about me, it's like, what did they say? I need to know. It's like, why do I need to know? It doesn't really matter. Nothing going to... Because... It's like to compensate from that like slight discomfort of I was the subject of someone else's conversation. So now let's go at why does that make us uncomfortable to be the subject of a conversation before we even know what we're being spoken about? Again, once we find out, the itch gets scratched. And you know what? Um, if anybody's ever had like something that really itches them, they might like scratch and 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 scratch. And, scratch and, scratch and, scratch and you can even, that can become a kind of not a good behavior, right? That you can get hooked on, right? And a person might get hooked on like being talked about because it feels good to know that you're being talked about in a good way. And, okay, fine. But like, it's like layers and layers. Why is, why is it so uncomfortable to be talked about? Does everybody feel uncomfortable being talked about? Yes. Deep, deep, deep down. Depends how, it depends how aware they are. Like people very much like put themselves out there on purpose. Yes, true. People have a, have a strong tendency to engage in things that they also find uncomfortable, which for numerous, numerous reasons. It's also interesting to think about the kinds of people that put themselves out there to be talked about, not as a byproduct of something else, but like for that purpose. They, they tend to share certain kinds of common psychological features. One of them, which is like not, not a, a um, a, a, they don't, they, they, the people like that often are suffering from a, a lack of a authentic sense of self. 
So you can see how that would play into that. But bracket that issue. So are they like looking for the reassurance that every time someone talks about them, it's good? Like That's part of it. And, and if they're talking about me, then they can use that to kind of build up a, a kind of an artificial sense of a self. It's really not a... No, it's not. Um, but like there are also people who do it like for a specific purpose. Like let's say, because they're running a political campaign and they need people to let them know who they are and decide to vote for them. Can I be cynical for a moment? Yeah. <laughs> the overwhelming majority of people that run for political You're campaign, exactly. their real motivation is the thing that or I just said. Just like personal branding, like putting, like having people know who you are and know what you do, so that they hire you or buy your products. Or and do you know what the long term results of that that people start to feel when they do that? No. They tend to feel very objectified and commodified because if you do have a healthy sense of self, you. So the the, the thing is, the reason why it's uncomfortable. You don't control the narrative? Part of it's you don't control the narrative, but I want to touch on something slightly deeper. You are not something that is so easily captured. We all have a sense, right? We all have a sense that we're somehow amorphous or we're somehow deeper or we're somehow um, hard to pin down exactly who I am and what makes me me. But the thing is, if somebody's talking about me, Whatever the thing they're talking about is something that they have like some kind of handle on, right? And so there's this kind of almost implicit like treating me like a a a a a a a thing. Now you can be careful about the way you talk to people, try and avoid that. But that there's this tension. By the way, th- this is also true about yourself. You can um, Hasidus speaks about the dangers of speaking Russian horror about yourself. Um, and That's be- the only time that I've ever mentioned Russian horror and like letters people. Yeah. Right, and, and the issue is ultimately the same is that, is that when, in order to speak about somebody you have to reduce them to something that you can talk about now which actually is an important thing for instance I'm not really talking about them it's not uh, what I'm saying here is not halacha okay I'm making a point in, in, uh, never confuse halacha and other parts of Torah I'm using halachic ideas in a certain general sense when you're not speaking about the person it's not Lashon Hara for instance, if I use a particular person as an example of something, so we learn about some particular behavior. Well, that's psychology. For instance, the Gemara will tell stories and, about people. The Chumash will tell stories about people. And some of those people don't come out looking so good, right? Why was why is not Lashar? Because are we really talking about them? What are we talking about? Their actions. One right, we're talking. Right, whereas we're talking about this, this dynamic, this event, this kind of an interaction. Is it right? Is it wrong? Understanding it, not them. Okay, again, that's not a lot. No, don't. Do, oh, now I've. But you know, um, the, the 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 there's there's when you sit and you when you when 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 you sit and you speak about somebody else, you're treating them like they are something that you can actually like, like, like summarize. summarize and analyze, right? Okay, so now here's the thing. What does that say about your basic sense of humanity at that point? You think people are simple? Yeah, people are simple. They can be summarized. They can be objectified. They can be analyzed. Can you really maintain your own... Words. What? They're yeah. Limited. Can you really maintain your own sense of your own humanity while doing that? No. No. So you might be talking about the other guy, 
But you've actually brought yourself down to that level equally, right? Mm. Now, if you are really aware, like in, 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 a, in a vivid way, that's what you're doing. You could feel that. Right? It would feel not just like you've, you, 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 you've dehumanized them, you've dehumanized you. Like, whether there's consequences like about somebody losing their job afterwards, is like, it, it's not, it, that, that's not the only ill that comes out of this, right? It, it itself is something, um, it's maybe a strong word, but it's despicable. Mm-hmm. And now, if you aren't speaking Lashon Hara, and you feel something inside you trying to drive you to that Lashon Hara. To speak the Lashon Hara, to sit and listen to the Lashon Hara. And you see that, that impulse in this light. How does that, that feel? It feels like something is coming and trying to do what to you? Coming to destroy you. Not physically, but in your soul. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, it's not coming to do that. Because you're, you know, you're sitting and you're davening, you're contemplating, right? But you know that thing is there. And you know later today, tomorrow, it's going to come. And it's going to try and drag you to that place. And there's nothing you can do to prevent it from coming. How do you feel now? Do you feel scared? Right? Right? Now, what I've said, by the way, notice I didn't mention God once. What I just said is Musr, by the way. This is Musr. Like traditional Musr. Like real good Jewish Musr, okay? Now, by the way, Musr and Chassidus are not contradictory in the sense that like, I mean, everything I said is, is, in, is incorporated into Chassidus. I can show you where these are found in Chassidus. Okay? But now let's add that a step further. That's what Musr is. Right. Real Musr is about, is, is about people were created as, a, as, a, as, 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 as you know, the expression goes, the image of God. So what does it really mean to be a human being? And we have all these, these aspects of ourselves that are driving to undermine that and let's confront that and be honest about that and deal with that. And, Now, what if I understand that God has put his divine value, right? That sacred, ineffable greatness that we talked about earlier, right? And he has invested that value in preserving the, 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 the kind of core dignity of what a human being is and has completely... And, 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 and going against that is not just, it's, 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 it's denying, it's, it's, it's sacrilegious against that. So now it's not like I've gone against humanity because the value of being that on that human level is because of the, the is not just the value, the limited value I've seen it, but Hashem with all of his greatness that we've discussed, his will, his value, his, his ineffable being has, is invested in the dignity and the sacredness of, of that, what a human being is, right? And so to, to come and tear that down and reduce it to something so shallow, right? 
it's infinitely worse. So now, right, when it says that Hashem was something, something that, is, that is an evil condemned by the Torah, condemned by the rabbis, what it basically means is Hashem looks at that and says, I can have no part of this. Uh, if this is here, I must leave. Well now, okay, you just had this, like, so, so there's, there's this, we're using Lashon, right? Lashon Hara. The, the, the act of speaking Lashon Hara completely debases the person I'm speaking about. It debases my own sense of humanity. It's compl- it, it, it creates a void where Hashem can no longer be present at all. And I know that there is this element of my being that's going to try and drag me there. And I've just become aware of Hashem's greatness. And that has had an emotional impact to me. That's going to make me feel very on guard about that, that Yetzirah, that drive, that inclination to speak Lashon Hara. I'm going to feel a kind of a fear towards that. But not a fear because of what Hashem's going to do to me. Right? It feels like there's this there's this trap that I have, I have to be, I have to be cautious of. I have to be, you know, it's like, you know, you're in negotiations with someone you know is going to try and cheat you, but you have to, you have to negotiate with them, right? You have to be on your guard and you know, you're going to, you're not doing it now, but you're going to have to do it later. Why is there this, like, is there a, is that a question to ask? Why is there this element? That oh yeah, yeah. Chapter 27 of Tanya, but we're in chapter 16. <laughs> <laughs> Can't do everything in one day. But that's what I want you to say. Fear of sin is fear of God. It's fear of God in a specific form. It comes from a sense of Hashem's greatness with, coupled with the awareness that that greatness can be stolen away in a moment. And there's some things in my life that are even part of me that are actually driving me towards that. So fear of sin is fear of God. Fear of punishment is not fear of God. It's fear of what God will do to me as a consequence. That awareness of God's greatness is not fear. It's just awareness. That's right. So if you look in the text, what does it say? Whereby his understanding will create a spirit of knowledge and fear of Hashem in his mind to make him turn away from evil. Right? His understanding gets a spirit of knowledge, like a kind of an awareness. And that then is a fear. And that fear, right, is a fear that makes the person turn away from evil. And that basic level, by the way, there's other levels of this, but the basic level of this is this thing called fear of sin. Okay. Um, why should, like, what about not kosher food? What's so bad about it not eating kosher food? So I ate a cheeseburger. So what? Sin. It's a sin. What does that mean? That means, I'm looking at the word disconnection. Well, what did we just say about Lashon is actually a good example because it's easy for us to understand first the, the human evil in it and then we just can tap, right? But, but right, you've, in, the, in the act of speaking Lashon Hara, you've lost any sense of your own humanity and then if there's divine value in being truly human, then, then you've lost that divine thing as well, right? Okay, so maybe I don't necessarily understand how it works, but in the act of eating a cheeseburger, what has happened to the divine presence in my life? What has happened to that infinite value of which there is no other source of value? It is gone. And even if I don't understand the mechanism by which it occurs, just the fact that I know that, it, that it, 
it would occur if I were to eat the cheeseburger. And there's something that's driving me to eat the cheeseburger. Maybe not now, but later. Makes me feel a kind of fear. By the way, what you'll notice here is this kind of fear only works about what, for things that you know are sins, right? This is going to be a very important point. If I don't know that something is a sin, I can still have fear of sin and still... No, not have the connection. It's still sin. Okay, let me give you an, an, an example. Um, this is a controversial story. Um, there was a chassid who was traveling to his Rebbe for Rosh Hashanah. Okay? And he, for whatever reason, he was running late. And the, it was Rosh Hashanah, Erev Rosh Hashanah afternoon. And um, it's getting closer closer to Shkia, to the sun setting. And he realizes that he's not going to make it to the town where his Rebbe is in time before the sun sets. So what is the halacha at that point? Stop. You have to stop. You can't travel once, once the sun sets. Actually, a little, a little bit before. That's, by the way, you're not supposed to actually travel too close to Shabbos or holidays for this reason, so you don't get stuck. You're supposed to travel enough time that if something happens, you have a place to be and you don't have to stop in the middle of the road, spend Shabbos. Like... Okay. And he tells the wagon driver, keep, keep, whip the horses, keep going faster, faster, faster. The wagon driver says to him, but, but the sun is setting. And he says, the sun is setting is only a, is only a rabbinic, is, is, only, a, is only a doubt of Rosh Hashanah and, and, and traveling with the wagon is only a rabbinic prohibition. I, 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 I'm willing to be burned in Gehenna for that, but I have to hear the shofar from the Rebbe. The driver was Jewish? Different versions of the story. It's not a significant detail. Okay. Now, first off, he, he, that, that behavior is wrong, okay? That's not the right thing to do. But I want to ask you a different question. Was he being hypocritical? He, he, he's, he's, he's traveling on a wagon after the sun sets, which is a violation of halacha, in order to hear the chauffeur being blown by his rebbe. Yes. He's being hypocritical. I don't think he's being hypocritical. I completely think that, that that makes perfect sense to me. Okay. Now, do I think it's right? I don't think it's right. That but, comes from his knowledge of what's valuable. Okay. So to illustrate that, I want to, tell, so to answer, explain this, I want to tell a different story. This is one of my favorite Hasidic stories, okay? And I'll come back to that story, then I'll explain, and then the, there was a, a, a very famous um, rabbi named Rabbi Kiva Eger, who was not a, a chassid. He had a son named Rabbi Shlomo Eger who was, who was not just not a chassid, he was an, he was an opponent of chassidus. He hated the chassidic movement with a passion. And he had a son whose name was Label Eger who became a chassid and then became a rebbe. <laughs> so that was an interesting family dynamic. Anyway, so the story is how did Label Eger become a chassid? So the story goes is that he was learning in a town where there were some Hasidim of the Kutz Hasidic movement. The Kutz Hasidic movement is a very interesting branch of Hasidus. Um, they've emphasized um, truth and authenticity above all else. And I mean literally above all else. Um, including um, being nice to people. But anyway, so they came, so he was sitting and this was, and his father told him, you're going to have to stay away from the Hasidim. They're a bunch of crazy heretics. Don't, don't, don't get involved with the Hasidim. 
So he's sitting and he's studying Yom Kippur at night after the evening prayers. Right? There's, a lot, there's no meal, right? So what do you do? So he's sitting and he's studying Talmud. And into the shul come a bunch of Katsker Chassidim with a bottle of vodka and some cups. And they are dancing and they are singing about how it's a wonderful holiday. And then they see label Eger. Um, and they come over to him and they take the cup, they set it down, they pour some vodka and they say, label, today is a holiday. God has forgiven our sins. Say l'chaim. So he ignores them and they start you know, harassing him that he should celebrate the holiday with them and say l'chaim. And at some point he eventually loses his cool and he yells at them that it's forbidden. It says in the code of Jewish law, you're not allowed to drink on Yom Kippur. To which they start making fun of him. So it says in Shulchan Aruch, like every single thing that says in the books we have to do, I mean, come on, like there's a lot of weird things in Shulchan Aruch. Like, come on, it's a holiday, you forgiven our sins, say l'chaim. He says, it's not just a weird thing, it's like a basic tenant from the Mishnah, five things, no matter to do on Yom Kippur, one of them is eating and drinking. This is like, a, it was like one of the big deals. And um, they mock him for that. And then he gets really annoyed and he tells them it's a pasuk in the Chumash, it's a verse, right? You shall afflict your souls on Yom Kippur. Like, Right. This is, but there's no, there's no secular Jews at this point, right? Like everybody keeps him Kippur, even if you're not so religious and so pious, but some Kippur. And they start making fun of him that they also went to school, they also learned Chomish, and it's very nice, but what does that have to do with right now? Now they're celebrating the holiday and they should, he should say L'chaim. And at that point, he gets very frustrated and he blurts out that it's against God's will. And they say, oh, well, why didn't you just say that from the beginning? And they pour the vodka back in the bottle and walk out of the shul. And he spends the rest of Yom Kippur night in deep contemplation about why we don't drink on Yom Kippur. In other words, there's things that we know that are wrong because we know that from a book. And I don't mean how I found out about the information. I mean, where does it, what makes it wrong? Something that my sense is what's wrong is because it violates a book. It's not to, it's not, I do not experience that as a sin. I experience that as a breaking of rules. Difference. I'm going to try to explain to you. Okay? Most people don't experience sinning when they sin. If they did, they wouldn't do it. That's the kind of the point. You can't, you can't really know that you are sinning and sin. Because what is sinning? Sinning is engaging in something which sucks the very meaning and value of existence out from that moment. Right? It, it, it's a place where God says, I cannot be. And God is the source of all that is real, good, and true. You can't sin. Knowingly. Now, you can definitely break rules knowingly. You can know the rule book doesn't allow it. And you may even know there are consequences of breaking the rules, right? And you can nonetheless decide that it's worth it. Does that make sense? So this chassid, hearing his Rebbe blow the chauffeur, to him, he had a sense that God was present in his life. And the thought of missing that would feel like God was Absent from his life, okay? So missing the chauffeur is non-negotiable, right? Make sense? Traveling in the wagon on the time period after sun sets, right? He's like, well, that's a, it's, a, it's a doubt whether it's really Rosh Hashanah and traveling wagon and he's a rabbinic prohibition. And how did he subjectively experience that as a book, as, as, a, as a rule that's found in books? And he knows that the rules are real and he knows that there are consequences for breaking the rules, Right? He says, I know they're going to burn me in Gehenim, and I don't care because I can't miss hearing the shofar from the Rebbe. Right? Notice, was he, 
Again, I'm not saying the this behavior is proper, but if we go into, this, into the psyche of this person, what was happening? Whether it was hypocritical in his mind or whether it's well, I would argue that hypocrisy is all in the mind. That's why I picked that word, right? In, in other words, he had a tremendous fear of missing Hashem's presence in his life. He just wrongly did not appreciate that traveling in the wagon once Rosh Hashanah has started is depriving himself of God's presence just as much, if not more, as missing the chauffeur. But he, did, did he realize that? Did he know that? He, I mean, he knew what's written in the Shulchan Aruch. He knew what's written in the Code of Jewish Law. It wasn't like a conscious part of the- That's right. And so this is very important, is that this, what we're describing here, is dealing with the fear of God and how that is manifest as fear of sin. There's an entirely different thing that also needs to be done, which is not really discussed here, which is recognizing that this is a sin. And simply knowing that it says in a book that I'm not allowed to do it, and even believing that I'll be punished for doing it is not going is not enough. Because I need to, I need to something has to happen to give me that sense that this activity is is something which removes Hashem's presence from my life. Now, there's many ways that can happen, but that has to happen. Because if that doesn't happen, I might fear sin, and it just doesn't feel, it just doesn't, but this is, this doesn't, I don't experience this as a sin. Does that make sense? Okay, so again, this is an important thing. Like, when you're learning Tanya, we're not, not, it's not the same thing as learning Halacha. Now, if you were to ask me, Halachli, are you allowed to, like, are you allowed to, to, to break the rules just because you don't appreciate these are truly sins? No, you're not allowed to do that. And are you going to be held responsible for that? You know, I'm not God, but he judges people and he holds people, that's, yeah. But if I want to understand the, 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 the Bainani, the Bainani is not sinning. The Bainani is not, this is very important. The Bainani is not following a rule book. You know who follows a rule book? The Russia. Because the Russia knows there's a bunch of rules. And what happens when you break the rules? There's consequences. And so the Russia is always deciding, is it worth it to break the rules? I mean, the low-level Russia thinks like, who's God to tell me what to do anyway? A little higher levels like, well, God might, 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 you know, might make the rules, but maybe I can get away with it somehow, right? I can hide. You know, the higher-level Russia will be like, well, okay, I can't hide, but the punishment is not, is, is, it's, worth, it's, worth, it's worth the punishment for what I think I'm going to get out of it, right? But it, it, the whole thing is operating off of its being a rule. This person we're talking about here, he's not relating to things as rules. Rules don't matter to him. What matters to him is that this thing, this activity, this behavior, whatever it is, 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 is a state, is a place where Hashem cannot be. Hashem says, I cannot be here. I abhor this. I, I remove myself from reality if this is happening at that moment. And that this person can't, it, 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 that, that's, un, that's intolerable for this person. They're afraid of that happening. And they're especially afraid because they know there's something in them that's going to drive them to that, that they're going to have to be on guard about. And so it doesn't really matter if it's a, is it a biblical thing? Is it a rabbinic thing? Is it like, what, why does it matter which section of the rule book it's in? For that matter, it's even further. What if it's not in the rule book? What if they know that if they do this, God will not be present in their life, even though it's not technically forbidden in the rule book? Would they still be afraid of it? 
So this person is this person might use the rule book to help to get a better understanding of, of things, but they're not. But it doesn't feel like they're following rules anymore. It feels much more. Think think about it like if you have somebody that's really important to you in your life, right? And you know that there are things that ruin your relationship. They just ruin it. They're just a black hole of. And you know that some of those things are things you have tendencies of doing. And so you, you try to be cautious and mindful not to, not to get stuck into those places, right? Are you following a rule book? Do you feel like you're obeying? It's obedient? It's something else. It almost like rewires your internal moral compass. That's right. That's what we're describing. And that's why someone that really gets this they can look at themselves and say, yes, I'm, I, I, I keep halachas for the most part and I try to do the best, but like, I don't really fear sin. I wish I felt feared sin because like, I follow the rules, some of them because of habits, some of them because I fear the consequences you know, in the afterlife, some of them I fear the consequences in like, my own like, social circles and like, some of it's a little bit of a guilt trip afterwards. But like, this is describing something else. This is describing that the fear of Hashem becomes a fear of the sin. Because the fear of Hashem means that sense of being vulnerable before him also means realizing that his presence can leave. And there are things in my life that cause him to, his presence to leave. And those things in my life are not always external things. Some of those are internal drives that I'm going to have to confront. And right now, even though I'm not grappling with them because I'm in this elevated state of contemplation and prayer, but I'm not a fool. I know myself. I know what's going to happen this afternoon and tomorrow. And Yeah. One, why wouldn't you sense like the like you don't really feel that when it actually happens? And two, then why is there a concept of ownership? So the, the the concept of punishment, I'll answer that first, has different rationales. One rationale is because some people are not on this level and so it's always better to like have rules and consequences than to let you know it's like why do we have rules? Why do we have a Imagine the following scenario, right? Um, you're, playing, you're playing ball with your friends and the ball runs into a busy street and you run up to the street and you see the ball falls right into the busy street and you stop. And someone asks you, why'd you stop? And you say, because my mother doesn't let me run into the street. Everyone look at you like, you're nuts. I mean, your mother doesn't let you run into the street. And if she let you, you would run into the street. It's a busy street. You're gonna like get killed, right? But when a five-year-old, we're like, okay, that's fine. Why? Because we don't expect the five-year-old to have the sense that running to a busy street is death. So some of us, you know, are five. We don't, we're, 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 that's one reason. The other thing is actually a lot of the, what we call punishment is really not punishment. It's the cleansing of the sin. I don't want to get into that. I'm going back to the analogy you said about the, um, taking the thorn out, right? And so for someone who returns to Hashem, they actually... Um, Someone who sins and does tshuva, um, the, the Gehenim is actually not experienced as punishment for the sin, but as um, the healing of the soul. It's an extremely unpleasant thing to go through. Um, in fact, souls beg to be let into Gehenna. Um, so, 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 so you can understand punishment either as like in that kind of shallower sense, or you can understand punishment as that kind of rectification. But it's not, re but in both cases, like, there's kind of a superficialness of focusing on it. That's in terms of your second question. Remind me your first question. Why don't you sense, like, God, like, the devaluing uh, of God? That's easy, because you sin three times. 
we have something called desensitization. And the Zohar basically says that you lose your sensitivity after the third time. The first time you have some, we have free will, so we can overcome anything. We can, on the first time a person sins, they, they, on some level, they do, they do have some kind of an experience of it. Does it matter the level of sin? What? Does it matter the, like, the level of sin? Probably. I mean, this is where you get into the things that people are incredibly nuanced and complex and no two people are the same. And so therefore, like, we can only speak in, in generalities. But the Zohar speaks about this general idea that the first time the person sins, there's, 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 there's an impact on the soul. And the second time that there's an impact, but the third time the sin goes through and through. And at that point, there's nothing left to feel. But wouldn't that awareness stop from doing it a second time? Like... If you actually are aware, then I thought you said when you're aware of the you can't do it again. Well, so, so I, be, be, there's always this thing that we have free will. And one of our aspects of free will is we can shut things out. So I can be sinning. I can feel like I'm entering to death and like, sh- and like block that out to finish, carry through to the end um, of the sin. Um, we, you know, that's one thing. And the other thing is um, a lot of sinning doesn't owe sinning the, the there's a whole discussion in Hasidus about the fact that not every sin is against the rules. Sometimes something, for me, removes God's presence from my life. And the fact that it's not even against the rules of the Code of Jewish Law, we can use to rationalize that. And then we develop that desensitization that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, and sometimes Hashem, to test us, removes that sensitivity without our asking, right? But, but that's, um, but, but that, the reason why this is optimistic is that you can get it back. Um, it's possible to get it back. It's not easy to get it back, but it's possible to get it back. Um, when does this desensitization uh, start? Birth? No, but that really has a bigger impact overall. But What's the first sin everyone does? Well, so the thing is... That the, 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 from birth, it's not really sinning per se. It has a lot more to do with, this, this goes into parenting, of how the child is raised and what the child is allowed to experience and not allowed to experience because that has a big effect on it, the child. Um, not everything, in other words, you can encounter this kinds of stuff, not, but, but then ultimately the real problem starts in when you're actually making choices for yourself and things like that. And, and there are other, thi- and then there's certain things that have a stronger effect and weaker effect, like kosher, non-kosher food has a stronger effect than say Lushan Hara and by the way, sensitization. But these are things you can get back. Um, the same way you lost it, you can get it back. Not easy. Um, sometimes it takes decades. And even when you have it, you may only have it in a very subtle way because not every soul is so developed. But, um, you know, to, to, to put it like this, um, have you ever been to like one of these uh, Orthodox weddings where like they're playing the music way too loud so you can't hear the person next to you when you're talking? Okay. So, imagine like your whole life was like that. Right? And then you ask why you can't hear when the violin is playing and when the violin stops playing in the corner. It's kind of a silly thing, right? Because there's all of this other stuff. You have to if you have to live a life that's conducive to being sensitive. Um, but it's not that it's in. It's not like oh, there's only mystical tzaddik if they could be sensitive. No, it's anybody can be sensitive. I mean, to, to say that only a tzaddik can feel the connect or disconnect of a mitzvah is wrong. Um, but 
it's also wrong to think that it's just something easy to pick up on. No, I mean, if you if, if a person is if a person is still like hemming and hawing about like, you know, their sinful behavior, they're in it, they're not to it, and they live a life of distraction from from what's real and what's important and what's meaningful. They shouldn't be surprised that they don't have the sensitivity to feel the disconnect. Certain things, the disconnect is so abrupt and so profound, and that they do have a sense of it, even and it might not hit them today. It might hit them the next day or the day after, right? And that's like sometimes a person might sin one sin too many that prompts them to do tshuva. It's not an uncommon experience. But, so. But if a person was more aware, more sensitive, they would, they would feel it. So, so in order for this fear of sin to work, there's this other thing, which is a real personal knowledge that this is a sin. Not just, a, not just being informed that it's against the code of Jewish law. Does that make sense? Is that an excuse to violate halacha? No. It just means that developing fear of sin in and of itself is not going to be sufficient to get you to keep all of the halachas. You also have to develop a kind of an awareness that every violation of halacha is depriving Hashem's presence from reality in some way. And maybe even certain things which aren't even technically permitted, but in, in your specific case or situation are really not. They're not. Good? Okay. Questions on this? Before we talk about the, the, the Torah versus the rabbis, which is an, a small thing I want to mention, and then we'll talk about love. Let me start talking about love. No questions? Okay. So, why are some things prohibited by the Torah and some things prohibited by the rabbis? And I'm bringing this up in the context of what we just learned, that a sin is what? A sin is something that Removes the presence of Hashem from, from, from that part of the world. So why are some things rabbinically prohibited and some things biblically prohibited? Yeah. Um, maybe it's because like the I mean, what you're saying is true, but, but, but if a bunch of rabbis get together and decide, let's, let's all, from now on, nobody's allowed to go swimming on Shabbos. Like now, because the bunch of human beings decided that, all of a sudden, Hashem's presence is more or less felt. Like, there's a kind of disconnect there. You see what I'm saying? Like, I'm not saying what you're saying is wrong. It, 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 it's definitely true. But like, in the context of what we're learning here, right, that a sin is something that I engage in that causes Hashem's presence to, to vanish Right? And so therefore, the, the person who has an awareness of the greatness of Hashem is, is deathly afraid of that occurrence and is deathly afraid of the thing inside of them that drives them to that. Like, because the rabbis got together and banned a few things, like, how does that ha- that's, they made some rules, right? Go back to the rules, like, what does that have to do with my fear of sin? The rules from the, like, the oral Torah? The oral Torah is biblical. When we say it's Torah versus rabbis, um, um, oral Torah is part of the biblical things. But then why in early generations were they allowed to go swimming on Shabbos? But that's fine if, the, all, if, if Moshe did all the rabbinic stuff, but that's just not what happened. Maybe they were just more aware of 
Okay. So, so, so what I want you to understand is that, that there are some things that Hashem... This is all, by the way, I'm doing in the negative. There's a separate question when we talk about positive rabbinic things. And I do want to do the context here of sin. There are some things that, in essence, Hashem cannot be present there. These are the things that, that the Torah condemns. Okay, some of those things we can have an easier time appreciating, and a harder time appreciating, those things the Torah condemns. Then there are things that Hashem could be there, but it could also be that this kind of, is the kind of thing that could drive Hashem away. And what does it depend on? What? It depends, it, it, it depends on the person doing it. And what I hear mean, I mean the person, not the person's intent. I'm explaining to you what I mean. Okay? Um, this story, this, this, is, this is another true story which never happened, by the way. This is a story that Chassidim tell about why the Alter Rebbe was not okay with people coming and asking him to do miracles for them and he continued to do miracles for people. He write, don't come to me for miracles, but then he still did miracles. Um, so the story goes like this. There was two good friends, um, very, very close for a long time. And one of them was traveling <coughs> and had his wagon broke and he needed some rope in order to tie things together. And he realized he wasn't too far away from where his friend lived. So he walked over to his friend's house, knocked on the door and asked... Just out of the blue, do you have some rope? I need some rope. And he says, sure. He gave him the rope, tied up the wagon, fixed it, moved on. A few days later, the friend who borrowed, who asked for the rope, meets up this, is, 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 is walking down the street or whatever, and he sees some other person, their wagon is broken down, not too far from where his wagon broke down. And um, so he says, what's wrong? He says, my, my wagon's broken, I need some rope to fix it. And he says, oh, you see that house three doors down? They have rope. So he goes over to this person, never met before. He knocks on the door. It's you know, and he and the uh, which was the friend of the, of this guy, opens up the door. Is, and so the, he sees a perfect stranger standing in front of the door, and he says, "I need some rope. Can you give me some rope?" Now it's the same behavior, with the same motivation. They both just want to fix their wagon, right? But one is like, "Excuse me, like where do you come? Up? Like like." I'm sorry for interrupting it. Because the first one, they had a relationship. And so that event took place in the context of a relationship. The same event with the same motivation, but in a different context, right? Mm -hmm. This is my friend for years. This is a person I've never met before, right? Okay. So you see what I'm like, like? And that's not something you can just change by having different motivations. That has to do with like who you are to them. Well, what happens over time is that the nature of our relationship with Hashem unfortunately changes. And as that nature changes, things which used to be not driving Hashem away and maybe even bring Hashem into our lives in this more distant, this more estranged relationship don't have that same effect. And so what are the rabbis doing? This is what I'm now saying is on a more mystical level. So the rabbis are looking and saying, we as a people are not, we don't have the same quality of relationship with Hashem that we used to. And therefore, things which used to be, things which, which used to be able to be godly activities are now intrinsically ungodly because of the difference in our relationship fundamentally. And so yes, in the times of the first temple, you could go swimming on Shabbos 
And you would be careful about all the things, but swimming on Shabbos did not in any way take away from your connection with Hashem. In fact, maybe, arguably, you're supposed to enjoy Shabbos. That's a form of enjoying Shabbos, and you connect to Hashem. And at some point, the rabbis realized, aside from all the ramifications, which is like the more legalistic explanation, the mystical explanation is they realized this activity for us, given the level of estrangement that we've had as we move further away from Hashem, causes Hashem to disappear from our lives. And so what's happening is that the rabbis are, are observing something about the re- reality between ourselves and Hashem and then codifying that into law. And when rabbis disagree, what they're saying is that they disagree about whether this is really like an objective fact about the nature of the relationship between Jewish people and God, or this is something that we can still overcome and deal with. And so the rabbis that say we shouldn't ban this thing, think it's something we can still overcome and make godly. And the rabbis that say we need to ban is like, given the state the Jewish people are in now, there's no way that this can be God. There's no way God's presence could be in this activity. So we need to just outlaw it. And it's if you have this understanding of what a rabbinic prohibition is, you treat it as a sin in the same sense as a biblical prohibition, right? But if you think of it as just merely a safeguard for something else, it's not the same thing. Right? So it's a different way of thinking of it than just like the standard halachic explanation that the rabbis are charged with making offenses to make sure we don't commit like more serious offenses. Does it make sense? Okay. Um, by the way, what that means is that we can now understand a deeper thing. Many of the rabbinic prohibitions don't apply, didn't apply in the temple. So the legal explanation is that when people are in the temple, they're just more careful. So you don't need the fences. What's the spiritual explanation? The relationship is a lot closer by nature. Right. Being in the temple, just like being at earlier stages in history made a diff- was a different kind of relationship, the difference between being in the temple versus not being in the temple also made the relationship a fundamentally different relationship. And so the same actions in the temple are not the same actions as outside. Which now leads to an interesting conclusion. When Mashiach comes, what might happen to many of the rabbinic prohibitions, if not all of them? It might disappear because... What? Very possibly. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi used to, used to take a hot bath every Shabbos afternoon. He also banned hot baths also. <laughs> the, legal argu- so the legal argument is he realized that people were heating their baths on Shabbos. But the mystical argument is that he realized that he was the last of an era. That the generations... Like, the people that were in the, in the upcoming generation going forward, he sensed they, they don't... Their relationship with me is not, I mean, there's a big And so, it's like, this, this can't continue. We're not, people, people that are coming are not the same. Their sense of God is not the same. There's no way to bring godliness into taking a hot bath on Shabbos. And anything, it drives God's presence away from these people. So, no more. And then he stopped taking baths also, by the way. Because, you know. Can't have one rule for one person, one rule for someone else. Oh, yeah. It's not good. <laughs> what? On Shabbos, on Shabbos. Yes, the Shulchan has increased. So if you look in the Shulchan you will find that there is an accumulation of prohibitions. Yes. Um, this is, this is, this is, the, the, this is, the, now again, there's different explanations, but the, but the explanation in Hasidus which is actually rooted in Kabbalah, is this idea is that, is that the nature of our relationship with Hashem is becoming more and more estranged. And as a result of that, 
the, the, the things which cannot house the divine presence in our lives anymore become a greater and greater sum of things. There's the legal argument that like we have all sorts of like precautions and precautions and precautions, but we're, I want to differentiate relating to these things as sin versus rules that can be broken. Because mm-hmm. again, in this context, the rules that can be broken don't, doesn't, doesn't move the person. It's the sense that Hashem's presence is absent and that's like worse than death. Good? Okay. Fine. And, now our translators added this phrase, at the same time. I'm not so convinced that the at the same, you can have the fear and the love at the same time. That's actually a huge discussion, whether that's really possible to experience them simultaneously or not. So let's just say that certain people, if they have a sufficient if their level of awareness of Hashem is sufficiently profound and their emotional maturity is sufficiently sophisticated, then maybe they can experience love and fear kind of as a simultaneously mixed experience. But most people fluctuate between those emotional experiences. They can't actually experience them simultaneously. But okay. The love of Hashem in his heart. In the right part, the right part is specifically um, the part that houses the godly soul. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on that. So meaning that the love of Hashem here is not the love of the animal soul, but the love of the godly soul, right? So it's not that I love Hashem because He provides me with my human needs. I love Hashem because Hashem resonates with me. There's something about Hashem that resonates with me that I've unlocked by contemplating His greatness. Okay. Now what is love? Because we're going to start this with three minutes left at the end of class, and we will continue on Monday because tomorrow's questions and answers. What is love? I said at the beginning of class. Love, desire, what is that all about? Connection. Um, I'm going to use the following formulation as our introduction to love, as understood by Chassidus. Is that love is by definition not selfish. And love is by definition not selfless. Because selfishness and selflessness exist with a certain, on a certain ground. There's a certain conceptual basis you have for both of the ideas. There's what I need. There's what you need. There's what's good for me. There's what's good for you, right? If I make what's good for me the priority over what's good for you, we call that selfish. selfish. If I make what's good for you over priority over what's good for me, we call that selfless. What do you call it when there's no sense of the dichotomy between what's good for me and good for you? Partnership. Right. That's kind of a partnership, connection, a unity. That's what love is about. Love brings about, the degree of love can be measured by the degree to which selfishness versus selflessness is not part of your experience. So what would it mean to say, I love my children? That somehow my sense of my own well-being and their well-being is so intimately bound up, the notion of, do, of like who's more important, who's doing something, like that, that's just not how you experience it anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, there's many kinds of love, okay? And in that sense, there's actually a, a wonderful statement of, of, of the previous Rebbe where he says, um, um, a love which, 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 which is what we call like selfish. I'm paraphrasing it. It's not it's in Hebrew. But a love which is selfish means I love something because of what I get out of it, and then when I got what I need, I move on, and the desire disappears. He says that's not love at all. That's, a, that, that's an imitation of love. Because it still has retained the sense of 
right? It's my needs, and the other thing is just the object that I use to meet my needs. Okay. In that sense, it's very hard to love food, <laughs> right? Okay, so what would it mean to love Hashem then? That's very different than fear. That mean, To love Hashem would mean some sense of what's good for him is what is good for me. What's good for me is good for him. Me being whole involves him. And some sense that for him being whole involves me. That's a very different kind of experience than the experience that we talked about as fear, right? Emotionally, they feel very different. That's love. We're going to talk more about the love. And we're going to talk about how the love leads to the fulfillment of mitzvahs. Okay, but that's what we do on Monday. Okay? By the way, which of these things the person would experience first or second or more dominantly is going to vary from individual to individual. The same two people can contemplate the greatness of God to the same degree, but the unique character of their souls is going to affect exactly what blend of love and fear they're going to end up with. They can adjust it by kind of changing the contemplation differently, but still there's, there's an element of how Hashem ultimately resonates with their godly soul is going to be unique to that. But it's going to have these same basic kind of themes and parameters. Good? Okay. You should keep Shulchan Aruch. Don't, don't say <laughs>